0: Welcome to the Austin Institute's podcast, What We Can't Not Talk About. The number one predictor of what adults think about the sort of hormonal and surgical transition of teenagers who have gender dysphoria, the number one predictor of that is whether they identify as pro-choice or pro-life. Like, it's about abortion, right?
1: Good morning, everyone, and welcome to another episode of What We Can't Not Talk About, the podcast of the Austin Institute for the Study of Family and Culture. I'm Dr. Orlandi, and if there's one guest that we had multiple times on our show, but that we never get tired of inviting, well, that is the one in front of me right now, UT professor of sociology and Austin Institute senior fellow,
0: Mark Regnerus. Thank you. Seems like I've been a long time since I sat in this chair, but it really hasn't.
1: Well, as I mentioned already, you know, you're always welcome and always want to have you back. So welcome back. And the last time, which I think was quite recent, and we talked about the war in Ukraine and the role of women in conflicts and a family. Of course, I'm hoping that by the time this episode goes on air, that war will be over. But before that episode, we talked about some of your latest research, which was sponsored by the Austin Institute, which was a study based on a survey on the attitudes towards particular behaviors within the church, sorry, t- attitudes of the, of the clergy in the U.S. towards certain behaviors that the church regards as sin. And you, you were mentioning how that research showed that the U.S. clergy was going towards a conservative direction. And I was just wondering if you were continuing the work on that, or if, if that work had been contested or somehow
0: uh, The clergy business, part of it's under review at a peer-reviewed journal, and we want three articles total out of it. We had written two pieces. And now, we're, you know, it's it's one thing when you finish one, you can start talking about it. Mm-hmm. But uh, we'd like to see them get in print. So they're kind of undergoing peer review right now. Okay.
1: Well, today we're going to discuss another data analysis that you published at the end of January. And you also co-authored this with Dr. Brad Vermurlin, who works with you quite often. Before we get started, would you introduce just very, very briefly yourself to the very few in our audience who might not know you yet?
0: I'm Mark Rignaris. I'm a professor of sociology at the University of Texas at Austin. I helped found and start the Austin Institute for the Study of Family and Culture, which is producing this fine broadcast. And I've just been working for 20 some odd years on questions of religion, sexuality, relationship behavior, marriage, kind of elemental things that a lot of people care a lot about. And uh, I just pose empirical questions about them and curious and so I I ask questions and try to offer answers.
1: Yeah, and I think you you ask a very interesting question in this latest survey, one of the most heated debates you're entering, but you're actually only just analyzing what the attitudes in the US are toward well let, let me tell like start with the the title of the paper which is Attitudes in the U.S. towards hormonal and/or surgical interventions for adolescents experiencing gender dysphoria.
0: A clunky title, but the editor insisted on something. Well, so there, is,
1: there is gender dysphoria, and we're trying to right. understand how Americans feel. Correct. What they think about people transitioning.
0: Adolescents. Adolescents and doing so um, with hormones or surgery.
1: So, and another premise is needed. I think. The fact that today we're discussing the results of a survey and not your personal ideas or our personal ideas, correct? correct? Yeah, and that's what you always do. I try. Correct? Okay. Okay, so let's start from the beginning, which in this case is in the title. What is gender dysphoria?
0: Yeah, so gender dysphoria is defined in a variety of different ways, but it's often sort of like this conviction and strong feeling that you are your sexed body is... Not in keeping with how you are are perceiving yourself or wishing to be. And it's causing you significant distress. I mean, so the dysphoric part is sort of like, is this a problem for you? I mean, some people, this is the case, uh, but that just, it's not that big of a deal to them. We could get into some of the kind of technicalities, but like, you know, it's easy to think about tomboys from the past, right? Some people think, oh, they might have been the gender dysphoric, transgender population that was untapped or. Unable to transition, etc., and yet it may just be, be that the you know they felt some disjoint with their body and their interests and how they perceive themselves, but it was not a dysphoric sense. It wasn't mm-hmm. not a, a problem. So dysphoria typically involves like distress over the situation.
1: You talked about transition, and that's the attitude you're studying on towards certain transition. And I know I read from your paper that the current clinical literature on transgenderism speaks of a four-stage course of action for transitioning, or what are the stages?
0: The four stages where people, usually children, but not necessarily, socially transition, mm. and this is involving adolescence or right at puberty, will Take puberty blockers to kind of suspend. They call it endogenous puberty, which means you know puberty that you should expect given the body that you are in. Then at some point you've suspended it, and then you begin cross-sex hormones to sort of invoke the non-natural sex characteristics, secondary sex characteristics. So your body would not do. Under its own sort of, but you've sort of stopped puberty and you've started kind of the the process of fostering breast growth if you're a natal male, born male, or you know restricting that and growing facial hair if you're born uh, a girl, a natal female. So so you have this that third stage where it's not just a suspension; it's a moving in the other direction via. Uh, hormones, hormonal right. treatments okay. and then surgery are typically like more than one surgery so if you think about if you were born a male like i have this whopper adam's apple it's ugly as sin but it's more likely to be the case that men have pronounced adam's apples mm-hmm. than women yeah and so you will do sort of throat surgery do they call it which is basically shaving the adam's apple so it looks less like a male right top surgery taking off breasts. Typically, there's like a variety of surgeries um, that go along with all this. And then bottom surgery where this is, you can use your imagination. I can go into technical terms if you want.
1: I don't think we need to. I mean, transitioning from male sex to female sex or vice versa, I think could be pretty evident uh, speaking of our reproductive um, organs. But before we go to the attitudes, what are the laws, generally speaking, on puberty blockers, Cross sex hormones and, and surgery in the US. The laws. Uh, there really aren't laws. So <laughs> children can be subject to all these procedures based on their You know, the, thing is, choice, the thing is,
0: so far as I can discern, there's not a lot of law on this. There's a lot of sort of professional sensibility and uh, these sort of medical professional organizations, what they counsel. But what they counsel is not instantiated in law. So, for example, in the state of Arkansas, the legislature voted to sort of make these treatments for minors, not the social transition, but the hormonal and the surgical, illegal, right, up until age 18. That kind of threw everything into a tizzy and led to a lawsuit, et cetera. But in sort of exploring that, you learn that, okay, the American Medical Association, the American Academy of Pediatrics, all these organizations, they will offer counsel and they will say what we recommend, right? But there's, you know. But can they recommend against it? It's not a legal it? thing. They can recommend against it. And when those organizations do recommend against it, a lot of professionals, practitioners will follow that guidance, mm. but not all of them, right? So right now we're kind of stuck in this situation where the medical professional associations are following The Endocrine Society and the, uh, we call it WPATH, their recommendations. But those recommendations are getting younger and younger. Treatments starting when they're 13, 14. Surgery, it used to be up until present that, you know, we don't do surgery on minors, except maybe top surgery if it's medically indicated. I put that in sort of quotes because like, well, what does it mean to, why would it be medically necessary to lop off a girl's breasts because I mean, she a doesn't, tumor. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, that, you know, why is it medically inadequate? Because the doctor feels like she really wants that or her dysphoria mm-hmm. is profound, etc. So, but there's no law around it. So right? we're like,
1: it reminds me of the far West that we had at least, you know, maybe, even, I don't know. I know that that was the case was in the U S but like when you start developing new, I know the in vitro fertilization, the stem cell right. research, yeah. and then, you know, more or less like professionals are doing what is in their best interest. So depending on what's your job, you're just going to continue going in that direction and yeah. suggesting that that's the best course of action. Right. But if the course of action is the best course of action is determined by the outcomes, my question is, do we know what the outcomes are of yeah. these treatments on children?
0: Right. So there's a, uh, I'd call it a healthy debate, but it's, it's an unhealthy debate right now about this. It's saturated with sort of, you know, non-representative samples, small samples. You know, there's no clinical trials in here. And people will say there's not what we call clinical equipoise, which is meaning like there's there's no way to compare one treatment with another treatment without the one group being randomized into it and feeling like it got a really raw deal, right? So when my father had cancer back in the late 90s, he had a chance to get into a clinical trial where you're comparing one treatment versus a new possible treatment. And the the new possible treatment might've worked better, but he, he didn't like the, you know, meant more time in the hospital, all that stuff. And he thought he was terminal, which he was. And he just decided I'm not going to do that. Right. Whereas the argument in this domain is like, you can't do comparisons Mm -hmm. of treatments because, On the one side, the medical professionals think this is the only treatment to do, right? At the same time, there are plenty of us out there who think this is a rather invasive, irreparable, irreversible treatment for minors. Why aren't we trying some other means and mechanisms? Because you mentioned not only some of the hormonal part
1: can also be irreversible, right? Uh, For a time,
0: but not forever. And so, you know, people hang on this. So the, the medical professional organizations and the activists will say, Oh, it's, it's reversible. Like, and, but they know that for a little while, yeah, not forever. And even w- if you suspend somebody's puberty for a while, that matters, yes. right? Their bone density, Absolutely. their sort of their yeah. height, all these things are going to be suspended even, and you don't I mean, just shoot up after that. Right. I mean, you're going to have, if somebody suspends it for a while and then decides to go back to what they're and I, you know, They're going to be stunted a little bit in growth, Mm -hmm. et cetera, bone density. I mean, some of these things are recoverable. Some of them are kind of, you know, aesthetic. Okay, fine. You're not going to be six foot. You're going to be five foot eight. Not that big of a deal. But some of them are irreversible, especially when we get into cross-sex hormones. Then you put fertility in jeopardy fairly quickly.
1: Yeah, and you talk about how uh, UK and Sweden placed restrictions on these kind of procedures. Yeah, uh, Sweden, recently.
0: Finland. Now France is talking about you know everybody except lawless United States, Canada, UK, and Australia. Her Majesty and the colonies. True. I, may, I mean, I, oh, what comes to mind is always like how
1: much do these procedures cost, and you know, is anyone earning yeah, money out, right. out of out of right. performing them? But. Having said that, I know that on the contrary, twenty states, you right, plus d c. prohibit conversion therapy. What is conversion therapy?
0: Conversion therapy is controversial, and but it's different than, you know we've we've heard about like conversion therapy with regards to sexual orientation. And proponents of affirmative gender treatment like to kind of equate the two. But it's one thing to sort of try to get people to not think thoughts of same-sex attractions or something like that. That's that's quite difficult. And we're not trying, you know, one's not trying to change a person to not feel something. Conversion therapy around the sort of gender treatment stuff is like, a lot of people think how can we get a person to feel comfortable in their own skin, Mm -hmm. right? Rather than see the need to take their skin off and this place, that place, then the next place in order to quell this dysphoria. But uh, affirmative treatment activists and clinicians would say, no, that's, you know, you're talking about conversion therapy. I'm like, conversion Mm -hmm. therapy? Like, you are in process of converting them surgically, hormonally into what they claim to be is an opposite sex, right? Whereas, you know, helping soothe gender dysphoria without making lifelong permanently disfiguring decisions doesn't feel quite... like a conversion yeah. to me. I don't really get into that.
1: No, absolutely. And and you you just report how some clinicians, and I quote you, some clinicians argue that these bans disable a genuine informed consent about the risks of affirmative treatments and by therapists from reasonable therapeutic explorations which could assist clients in becoming covered with their natural sex. It's more like right. the title of this show, What We Can Not Talk About. Well, let's, let, let us at least talk about things and we're not saying which direction we want to go. But just suggesting one thing, a ban prevents one area of conversation. Right. That so people probably- are
0: intimidated into silence, psychiatrists, psychotherapists, you know, they feel like, oh, if I'm trying to treat this kid's gender dysphoria, do I have the option anymore of, try- mm. of trying to help them remain as is? So what becomes foregrounded here is this idea of gender identity that, like, what I think in my head is the most real reality, mm-hmm. not the material reality of the body I inhabit.
1: Okay, so long, long promise. Yes, let's let's, right. let's go. Let's go to the study into the data. Right. Who did you interview? Okay. The, let's, let's start from this. The question you centered all your study base, basically around one question.
0: Right. Correct. What adults in the United States between ages twenty and sixty-five thought about adolescent transgender transitions via hormones or surgery? Do they think, do they agree that that was okay? Or do they disagree? Do they think that's not, that's not a good thing? So it's just this one question, like what is your opinion of these, this idea? It should be
1: okay for adolescent to transition with hormones or surgery, if they identify with another gender. That's the right. question I yep. have. Okay, and so you say you interviewed people from 20 to 65 and yep. who were these people? How did this you This is a cross
0: section of the United States. It's a nationally representative sample taps into the same survey organization that I've used two other times before and that a lot of my professional peers have used. It's called the Knowledge Panel, and uh, it's very good. And we did this in late 2018.
1: So you say that the were in your in the way you gather this this data twenty two predictors, but now you have to lead the conversation because I get completely lost right when it starts. Like you know, looking at data now you analyze yeah. them. So, so we that's, that's ask, your field.
0: So we you know we ask a lot of questions in the survey, but the focus, the outcome we're interested in is is this treatment approach. But we ask questions about religiousness, religious affiliation, importance of religion, political identification, sexual orientation. You name it, we, you know, and so we look at like, do those things affect how people answer the question? Of course, it's it's not a shock that they do, right? So overall, forty-three percent of the adult population, roughly, disagreed or strongly disagreed that that was okay, right, mm-hmm. to treat adolescents in this manner. Thirty-one percent said they didn't really know what they thought. I don't agree. I don't disagree. Like fence sitting. There's a lot of fence sitting. And then 26% of the population agreed or strongly agreed in 2018 that this was okay. And I'm, I could guarantee you, if we fielded it again today, that number would be higher. But basically 43% against the the transition idea via hormones or surgery. 26% agree that's fine. And 31% like, I don't know what to think.
1: And you say, you interviewed, you divided sort of like the, you have other questions so you can tell, yeah. you know, what are the biggest links? Right. So what are those? Yeah.
0: So- Religious service attendance matters a lot. The more you attend church, the more likely are you are to disagree that this is a good idea. This transition, evangelicals are probably the Protestants are the most likely to also disagree that this is a good idea. How about whether they are parents or not? Whether they, they themselves have, yeah, are with parents, people that are that
1: have or don't have children. That would yeah. be
0: yes. Uh, the 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 number of biological children you have matters right the more children you have the less likely you are to think this is a good idea so childless people are more on board with it you know and people with 3 or 4 children are more on more against the idea than parents of one or two children Let's get to the discussion then, okay. because,
1: I mean, I, I'm sure that people can just, you know, we, yeah. we'll have the link to the paper, read the paper, analyze all the data and all the tables, which I'd never understand. But yeah. then I can talk sure. about them with you and you always provide great explanations. Try. But the discussion, you describe an interesting opposition between a so-called progressive and an orthodox view. And you mentioned this culture war, quoting another
0: sociologist, I think, yep. Hunter. James Davison Hunter, University of Virginia. So how does that apply to gender? Right. So he wrote a book called Culture Wars, and he was kind of the person who coined the term, if I'm not mistaken, back in the late 80s, early 90s. And he was criticized at the time, like, oh, you're un, you're stoking division. And he's like, I'm I'm capturing division. And so that he was clearly onto something. So We have this table in the back of the book where we talk about sort of progressive and orthodox worldviews. Those are the terms that I believe Hunter had used regarding human bodies and their relationship to the self. Now, why do we do this? Because the number one predictor of what adults think about the sort of hormonal and surgical transition of teenagers who have gender dysphoria, the number one predictor of that is whether they identify as pro-choice or pro-life. Like, wow. it's about abortion, right? Well, And so we're like, well, why would that be? Why would it trump religion? Why would it trump politics? Why would it trump all these other things? Sexual orientation, you name it. Whether you were transgender or not, it was more important than that. So we think, wow, right here is sitting this sort of culture wars thesis about how people think about their body, right? Is there sort of an integrity to the body? How you were made? your mind, your body constitutes this whole unified being? Or is there this dualism, like I am a self living in a body and these things can be divergent, leading you to the notion that, you know, I may be born into the wrong body, but I have the right of self-rule over my own body so I can make decisions about this. So you see like how this, works when you think about abortion and the right to choose an abortion. And those who sort of think like, we don't have that right. We are, you know, like this is, I am not my own. Right. So the body and the self don't like belong to you per se, but they are you. Right. So that was the, the thing that sort of struck us most is that here this issue, which Clinicians and the medical professional organizations are trying to make about like medicine, like it's about medicine, it's about treatment of disease or harm or whatever. The people don't buy it, <laughs> you know, it's proponents or opponents. Like fundamentally, it's about, you know, your idea of who am I, what is my, the relationship of my body to me, are they one and the same, or are, like they separable? Yeah. So and dualism. Who has authority over these things?
1: Dualism being the progressive view, um, and instead Correct. an idea of self and body as a one whole right. thing being the orthodox view. Um, I think it's a very helpful lens to to look at this issue and at the attitudes, which would, for once, make sense of also you know how you end up having something in common with people that might have voted differently from you or profess a different religion, mostly based on this. I think that this has a lot to do on other, on other topics. Now I, I can't think what is coming to mind exactly, but this division between our thinking self, I mean, even the relationship with our communities or, you know, can we choose everything? Can we yes. choose, right? Uh, can we choose our neighborhood? our neighbors right. can we, should we, or are we, embedded in a reality that is there a givenness uh, to the yes. social
0: world or do do i have the power to alter it at will
1: yeah so well uh, i th- i found it very interesting and very helpful uh, some final questions before we let you go cuz you have other things to write and to study but as a sociologist is there like a, a time frame for a society an entire society to change its
0: mind over a subject
1: or you know, is it different today because
0: of media, their some extent, it is different because of media, but, like, nothing is ever settled and final. I mean, societies can rethink things, right? It can take a long time, but it can rethink things. You know, if you think about, uh, uh, let's say, Marxism, right? It goes around, it comes around, but, like, nations experimenting with it, the experiment can last a long time, but... It ultimately they, they tend to move away from it right towards it for a while embedded and marinated in it and then away from it the same thing can happen here but we're talking like you know you can't measure it in terms of years or decades even like these are these take this is a, a long haul for societies to sort of change how they understand things but these are sort of elemental ideas. But right? you did mention that
1: you're sure that if you were to do the yes. survey again, that the numbers would have changed.
0: Yeah. Maybe not radically, but, mm. but somewhat. Whenever we were do? talking about sort of progressive things that have to do with sexuality, which this does, uh, the United States is slowly but surely tracking in that direction. And what would you, what would you think is the cause
1: for that? An increasing dualistic view? Uh, Public relations.
0: You know, I mean, which is extension of media too. It's uh, there are real players and real money being funneled and channeled into particular visions of the good life that are quite distinctive from those we have accepted before, and those uh, that a lot of monotheists, Christians, Jews, and Muslims would disagree with. So.
1: Final question, final. I promise. Based also on the title of this show, is it difficult to publish on this topic? Even though you know you're just presenting survey data, is it difficult? Does it matter what you're gonna say and find
0: out? Or uh, it probably does. It probably is. I try to you know do top rate analyses and with high quality data, and then I, at least I get a fair chance. Are there editors and reviewers biased against me out there? Absolutely, but. You know, it doesn't mean you're shut out everywhere, and so uh, this paper got through as it, I thought it should. It took a while, took over a year to even get an initial answer on it. I'm not sure what the backstory was that to that, but uh, it's one of those things where you have to have a lot of irons in the fire, and eventually they'll cook.
1: Well, so let me say this for those out there who liked this episode and that like your research and what you do, as we always say, you know, you should support the Austin Institute. But for in this case, once more, particularly for the research, particularly the work of the fellows and the fact that the Austin Institute can and will support the research because we care about science and we don't decide first what we want the science to say, but we're just going to go there and see what the data show. And support us also because we're going to promote this research and its result through our podcast. And we want to have Professor Agneros again, I hope soon, although I'll let him work sometimes from time to time. But thank you very much again, Mark. And I look forward to seeing you again. Thank you, Mario.
0: Thank you all for listening to the Austin Institute's podcast, What We Can't Not Talk About. Please share it with your friends. Please give us a five-star rating, and please donate so we can do even more.